0: We are Tim and Michelle Hill with Connect Over Coffee, and this is Midlife Realigned.
1: A series of conversations about navigating all the things midlife, helping you live a meaningful second half. We are so happy to be welcoming Emily Vass again to our conversation circle. Emily is an indigenous woman in death work. Her entire outlook on grief and death and dying is different than most of ours. She sees very few positive models of healthy grief in society today, and she is really interested in better and more honest conversations around death and grief.
0: Last week, we talked about how to prepare for the inevitable losses we all face in life. This week, we want to talk about how to deal with it while we're experiencing it. So we're looking forward to this conversation. I think it's going to be really helpful. Welcome back to the show, Emily. Hi,
2: guys. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about healthy grief. It can happen. It really can't.
0: I believe you. Our conversations have really made me do a lot of reevaluating about the way I think about grief. We talked about this more fully in episode six, so I don't want to go too deep here. But for the sake of a listener who hasn't heard that episode, would you introduce yourself and share a bit about why your perspective on death and grief is different than mainstream American culture?
2: Sure, of course. Um, as Michelle said in the introduction, I'm an Indigenous woman. I grew up biculturally um, with my mother, who she comes from a Czech-German-Catholic background, and my father is from the Lenni lenape and Tejata Nations out of Oklahoma. And I grew up in the Midwest around the Amish community, so... <laughs> Being a child who was allowed to engage in death practices, and I got to see multiple ways of how different families and personalities and religions handle death. It's just natural. I grew up to be a sociologist and go into mental health, and I've always had a heart to be at the end of life care. And so that's that's a little bit about me and how I got here.
1: Let's start today with a high-level overview kind of conversation. And then we're going to end with stuff that's really practical. You mentioned in another conversation we had that there are myths of grief processing. Can you talk about that for a few minutes and explain what you might mean by that and what those myths are?
2: Well, I think the ones that I see the most often that are detrimental is when somebody's maybe trying to help their family member. They see that they're starting a destructive spiral And other family members jump to their defense and say, leave them alone. They're grieving. Let them do what they want, right? You have to have that delicate conversation. How do we balance this out? I think excusing destructive behavior because of grief is dangerous, I absolutely think people need rest. I think absolutely people need to have some reprieve from the world while they're processing all these big feelings. But how do we do that? How do we do that in a healthy manner? Movies and music tell us to start drinking. That's not how the only way through grief is to be in it. We can't escape it. We can't go around it or over it. It will find us. If we don't sit with it, it will come out as anger. It will come out in other destructive patterns. So that's why I'm so passionate about this. I think the other thing that I've seen is we as a society, we don't know how to help people, especially once we've gone around the three month mark is kind of what I've seen with my clients. They get to that three month mark and their religious um, clergy are telling them, "Let's, let's think about things that are good and holy. We have to keep going. Well, that person darn well knows they have to keep going, but they've lost a significant person. It doesn't matter how long that person was in their life. What matters is what that relationship is. But whether you've just lost a spouse of 50 years in three months, they, they're still reliving so many of their precious memories. It's not helpful to divert them, right? <laughs> it's helpful to, To guide them to the people who are willing to sit with them in their grief and process it, right? To help them find that constructive way of mourning. And and we can mourn and be joyful. We can mourn and live a very productive life. I think that's where society has given us a disservice is that grief has to be next to manic depressive, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which is why my community, we take an entire year. That's I've I've changed my entire business because I'm actively mourning. And so for an entire year, there are specific situations I keep myself out of because of my vulnerabilities and because of my emotions while I'm actively
0: mourning. I think so many people want to compartmentalize everything and let's say in three months, okay, it's been three months, close that chapter of the book, move on, but we're done but it's different for everybody. So for some people, three months may work. It may take a year. It may take longer. I don't think there's a cookie cutter way to go through it. There are some guidelines that are consistent though, but everybody's going to do it at a different pace. Maybe. Would you agree?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. For some people work is going to be the way that they get up and function and shower and eat is because they need that routine and they need that schedule. For other people, Busyness is a trauma response, so we have to be aware of that, right? And so it's where all the personality and individualistic, we got to come up with individual plans.
0: That's true. You've also mentioned that there are positive models of healthy grief. How would you describe what a healthy grief would look like and feel like?
2: Sure. Well, I think a lot of it is accountability, right? It's being able to say what emotion you're feeling. We as a society are really bad about this with anything, let alone death. (laughs) We're not really good at saying, I'm frustrated. Give me a minute. It's not you. It's not me, but I'm frustrated. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And so I think it's, it's having more emotionally intelligent conversations. It's recognizing the space that we can go through all the emotions, up, down, backwards, and sideways. And it's perfectly normal and acceptable. We're not crazy. We're not mentally ill. We are humans who are being faced with our mortality and that's confusing and that's scary and most of us are going to act like a feral animal when <laughs> we're pushed into that corner. <laughs> so I think it's just it's being able to say or to come to the support or the aid of a friend or a loved one and and reassure them. Be like I didn't take that personal. I get it. You're going through something. I'm going to stay over here. And when you want to come into the same room as me, great, but I'm, I'm going to just do your laundry. You do what you want to do. Right. That type of thing. It's, it's just, it's being willing to be in the uncomfortable and to verbalize. We don't know what's going on either. We know this feels weird. And that's a big part of what I do um, as I've been doing a lot of educating this year while I'm in mourning because everybody's like, I can't take a year to mourn. Why can't you? I'm still working and mourning. I'm still a mother. I'm still a wife. But I I am actively and purposefully going through activities to be in my mourning.
1: I want to put a pin in that because I want to come back to that. Of course. But- One of the things that you said when you were talking last time was that at that three month mark, people often lean in and say things like, and say things like, it's time to move forward with this. It's been long enough. You need to do something different because basically this has gotten to the point where I'm tired of listening to it or it's making me uncomfortable. So, as a culture, when we think about that, when we have other people who are mourning around us and we look at them and we feel like, "Ah, aren't you done with this yet? How should our interactions shift? when we're dealing with that? Or what should we know about dealing with people in mourning? I would think one thing is just being willing to have those conversations as long as we need to have them instead of prioritizing our own comfort or our own schedule over someone else's grief.
2: I think that, that's incredible. And if every griever could have a friend who understood that about themselves, it would be amazing. And I think when we reach out to the grieving people in our lives, or when I've had people reach out to me, The things that have been the most meaningful is when someone says to me, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm here. Let's do this. Let's do that. Right. Because I don't always have the energy to argue. It's easier for me to just follow them on the walk. Right. Um, I think it's changing the conversation because also as a griever, I would be exhausted when somebody would constantly come to me and see me only as a griever. When I'm ready to step out of that, it's hard when other people keep shoving me into that traumatic experience. So I think it's just saying less, but just saying, I'm here and let's do this. And just waiting for that person to identify what their need is and what they want your role to be. But I think it's just being aware that you don't want to hold them in the grieving spot longer. They're always going to be a griever, but we don't have to remind them. Wait, we don't have to talk about that. They know. They relive it in their head. The moment they got the news, the diagnosis, the right all the decisions, if they made the right one. We don't have to. Being quiet sometimes is better. And just being present.
0: Which is very tough for a lot of people. But I think if you know, more of us realize that, we could help the grievers get through it better.
1: And I think if we just up our emotional bravery in general, I think we're just chicken.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's tricky because like we as a society have been taught, well, I'm going to tell you a story about me so we connect. And then it turns into a one-up situation. And that can be dangerous. And so it is. It's okay. I tell people a lot of times, you can support grievers by being in their house and doing tasks for them right? You don't have to support them by sitting on the couch going, did you eat today? You drink? How much have you drank? Where's your medicine? Did you take your medicine? Like, they're still a grown-up, right? Now, some people do need that. Some people do, but unless you've been asked to help with their medication management and their food intake, oh. don't be that person. <laughs>
1: In episode six, I think, we asked you if there were one thing that people could do to walk through a loss in a healthy way, what that would be. And you responded with, give yourself time, saying that we as a culture don't allow ourselves time to grieve and process our losses. And this is where we should start. But in thinking about that, I think. Imagine that most people's reactions will be, I can't take a year off work and do nothing because that's what we think of as mourning, doing nothing. So what are a few practical ways that we could practice this?
2: Sure. So some of my favorite ways to suggest is being in a book club with other grievers or, you know, talking about that. Maybe as, you know, support groups, they are doing some Zoom support groups, death cafes, are something that's becoming more trendy. Coffin clubs, um, which every region kind of has their different take on that and-
1: Okay, wait, explain those. I have no idea what those are.
0: Death cafe and coffin clubs? I thought you said coffee at first and I'm all in for that, but that's not what you said.
2: Yeah, so death cafes tend to be, or death over dinner, they'll call them, where it's just giving a time and space to come and ask your questions. Or it's giving you a time and space to be like, I'm a griever. I promised my daughter I would come and talk to other widows. I don't <laughs> want to be here. Right? Like, <laughs> it, it's it's a variety of things. But um, if you search the term death cafe, um, death over dinner in your town, your city, you might find some local links into some Zoom you know, and the great thing about Zoom is you can lose your connection at any time in it. <laughs>
0: Whoops.
2: Just saying, it's a possibility. <laughs> but also like coffin clubs, I've loved the idea of this. This is more in the green burial um, section of our industry. People get together and they make their coffins or they decorate a coffin for somebody who's preparing to transition. And so it is a hands on activity that they can do while they're because a lot of us need physical movement to process. That's why the gym is a, is an option sometimes for someone working through big emotions. Coffin clubs are something else that you can do. Um, I used to have, so we can watch on Clubhouse. We'll get this up and going in the fall again, is I called it Coffin coffin Club Talking Books, where we would do one book and every week come in and talk about that book and the different aspects of grief. Because we're talking about a third party, right? And our perception of what happened in the book or, or with the characters. And if somebody wants to share their experience, they can, it's a safe place. If they just want to be in the audience and listen, and hear that it's normalizing feelings, emotions, things like that. I think thinking about going to retreats, grievers retreats, as the world starts to open up again, that's something that I, that I help with and that I do. Motherless daughters, you know, that type of thing. We, we specify the type of griever so that they're with other grievers who get it. You know, we don't have to have the one up story. And so it's different things like that. It's having those types of we do have to be creative with our support groups. But, you know, coming coming to a workshop and doing your death planner with me because we've had it in the nightstand for a year and haven't opened it. Right. <laughs> it's it's getting yourself involved. In those activities where you're like, I know I should do it, but I haven't. Or it's even like, we always say at somebody's funeral, we're going to live more, right? But what do you do in the next year to live more? We've been going horseback riding. You guys see that on our Instagram. That's a connection that my kids have to their tata that died. And so in our mourning, we go horseback riding. It it is now a non-negotiable. From the time my kids were born until their tata died. They loved horse riding, but it only happened when it was a super special occasion. But we've changed that. So that's what I mean. Like you can still mourn and live your life, but be more purposeful in the activities you're doing. And that's one of the ways my family did it, is we said, hey, we're doing Taco Tuesdays for Tata. Because Tata is the one that taught Andrew how to make tacos, and we bring it into our daily life. It's not that I'm shutting my life down to mourn. It's that we're consciously making healthy choices to honor their memory.
1: I think those are amazing suggestions.
0: I like the fact that you took the horseback riding that was a special occasion and only done every so often. And now you're honoring him by doing it all the time, enjoying it more often than just once a year type thing. And always remembering him when you're doing it. That's fantastic.
1: I also want to comment on the idea of a retreat for grieving families. My nephew died when he was about 12. It was completely unexpected. And it was it's devastating for a family to lose a child like that. And my brother and his wife went to a retreat in our area, actually, with other families who had lost children. And when they were done, before they headed back to their own home, they sat down with the rest of our family for a few hours, and they shared the experience with the rest of us. And one of the things that I remember so clearly them saying was that they were able to deal with some of the things that they needed to because they weren't so busy explaining it to the people who didn't understand. There was this level of, I already get it that freed them to deal with the things that they had to. And what a gift that weekend was to them. And so I would highly encourage that kind of activity or attending an event like that, even if you think it's going to be hard, it is so, so hopeful. The other thing I wanted to comment on, it was the idea of doing a retreat like the one that you say that you lead to do some of the preparatory work. I think that's such a great idea because not only... Might we not want to deal with it because it's uncomfortable, so we put it at the end of our to-do list. But it's difficult to do those thought-provoking things in the middle of our everyday lives, in the middle of paying the bills and taxing kids. Setting time aside to just step out of our daily circumstances to think through those things that take more mental and emotional space, I think that would be really helpful. So I love that idea as well.
2: Well, and, you know, it's because there's so many important questions when we're rushed to make those decisions anxiety management isn't an option anymore because now we're on a deadline. You know, an example where I see this is assisted living and care facilities are requiring people at administration and intake to have burial preparation. And they won't finish the intake unless you can list which facility's taking your body out of here. Because not that they're that rude, but it's essentially, they know a family is gonna be in chaos when this happens. And they know that they don't want to deal with guiding the family or being that person that's like, we need to get this going, right? Because at the end of the day, they they have a wait list for that apartment. But I've seen so many families panic. You know, they they finally pick the facility and then they're like, okay, well, you have to fill this out. Well, our meeting with the administrators at 10 a.m. tomorrow. You know, and now they're panicked to come up with plans too. It is something that it takes a lot of brain power to process, and we deal with emotions because we remember our past experiences. Whether we were in charge of the um, arrangements or we weren't, it's just like, I don't want to think about any of this. So, if you can think of doing it with someone with a fun, colorful personality. <laughs>
1: Like Emily.
2: (laughs) It helps take, you know, whether it's just a Zoom session or you you come to a workshop or, or a retreat or something like that. And then the other people that are having the conversations, you're like, that's an option? I didn't know that was an option.
1: Yeah, that was the other thing I thought would be so helpful is that we don't talk about it. So we have no idea what's available, what's appropriate or what we should even be thinking about. And so to have somebody guide you through that process, I think would be really really helpful, really make life easier.
0: I think it's great that the assisted living centers are doing that because it makes it happen. It needs to happen, but nobody wants to do it. We put it off, but that forces some of the decisions to be made.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I've seen, um, it's kind of when I worked in uh, Washington, lovely town called Port Townsend, I worked at, it was independent care on one side and assisted living on the other side. And that's really where it solidified for me. I wanted to be in elder care and end of life because I saw how unprepared the families were. Like they're just barely handling the fact that this is where we're at now is entering into assisted living. And then I was the resident care coordinator who, this this was something that you just could never have been scripted. I was waiting for an ME to come and remove a body at the same time that the marketer had a, a tour coming through with 30 people. And she's having a panic attack because she knows Miami hasn't shown to remove the body and that we have a grieving family on site. And so, you know, facilities have had to come together and say, we need policies and protocols for how, how do we respect the families? How do we be kind and caring? How do we maintain business? And so that's why it's good to have a death worker come in and be that bridge and to represent both sides. And to say, like, if we have these conversations freely and openly and we know we're going to talk about it and we're going to come back to it or when we know when that deadline is. So um, because, yeah, it's harsh for the facilities to say, hey, fill this out and sign it before your appointment. And the families are like, wait, what?
1: So we've had now, I think, three conversations about this. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wish people would ask about or want to talk about, but you never get asked the question?
2: Oh, my goodness. That's such a fun, juicy question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is my favorite one to ask, actually.
2: I love it. And my brain doesn't know how to bring it down. Um, I, would say, I would say as a parent, start with the conversations with the kids younger be honest and gentle. Don't be afraid to start those conversations. Even if it's squishing the bug when the three-year-old, right, is squishing the bug. Don't be harsh about it was just an animal. It was just the neighborhood cat or we don't even know whose cat it was. Why are you upset? start there, right? Like, let's start being more aware. Let's start being aware of our language and just kind of recognizing that emotional intelligence and helping with that. I think as a parent, um, especially as a parent of special needs kids, I wish there was more for helping families help special needs kids process because neurotypical people have a hard time processing this. I think as far as professionally, I wish that more people understood, we're not here competing with hospice. That's its own entity. We're here to support the family. We're not here to be dark in witchcraft and black magic or anything satanic. I think there's a huge myth about why we're here and why we're doing this. It simply comes down to we are advocates. We want families to know you have someone who can think for you in your chaos. There's someone who can present all the options to you. And they're typically really good at saying, do you want me to contact your clergy to come in and go over these options with you? Do you know, we're the person who's calling out the, we're presenting the playbook and we're calling it out for you. So I think like that's professionally, I wish doctors understood that we're here to support the communication You know, doctors aren't miracle workers, they're physicians and, you know, and and they're not the social workers and then the social workers don't understand the medicine, the death workers and the death doulas that are stepping in this space are an awesome resource in the communities that people just don't realize they have.
1: I think what we'll do is in the show notes today, specifically, we'll include some resources and links to places where people can find out more information, not just about Emily, because we include that stuff on every episode that she's been here with us, but also in general, where people can go to for some more resources on these kind of things.
2: Yeah. And I can help with those links too, because like I was shocked. Um, When I first came through my certification process, which was, I did it because it's we're colonized minds. We need certifications and we need governing boards. (laughs) But, but at the time that I did it, there was less than 600 in the entire country. And, and that's grown considerably, but still given 10 out of 10 people die, there's, you know, but here in the state of Florida, so, you know, Florida, we only had 30 the last time I checked, but with the magic of the internet, you know, the, People can can look at different resources and find someone who matches their lifestyle, who matches their faith, belief and who's geographically close to them. And if they don't, you know, they can decide, do I want someone close to me and I'm willing to give on these other things or do I want to work virtually with someone six states away because they understand my values and my lifestyle? And I'll shoot you those resources too. So it's easier for people to look it all up.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Emily. We really appreciate it. Today's episode is brought to you by the Morning Moments Matters box.
1: Which is morning zen in a box. If you are about to walk into a season of crazy before school mornings, this box is a way to bring a bit of peacefulness into the time that you take when you brew your morning coffee.
0: Great coffee and a ritual that engages your body, mind, and heart. You can check it out at connectovercoffee.link/mmm. Thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. If you'd like to connect further with Emily, you can find her on Instagram at Native Death Diva or her website at Native
1: If today's episode has been helpful for you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of somebody right now who also might benefit from this conversation about processing grief and then share this show with them.
0: Until next time, stay caffeinated, y'all.